You are listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by Manitoba historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. What's in the pantry for us today, Janice? Food is an important part of holiday traditions. Last holiday season, three Manitoba food historians presented talks at the University of Manitoba. It was part of the university's Institute for the Humanities Research Cluster on Food and Identity. Preserves was there to record the talks, and we want to share excerpts from three of them with you today. Yeah, it's our holiday special of sorts. There's so many holidays whose traditions really center around food. Uh, in my own family, my mother always makes shortbread, peanut butter squares, and butter tarts. For my wife's family, her sister makes these biroks uh, or cabbage buns every Christmas Eve as an appetizer, which almost spoils my dinner uh, because I eat so many of them. What about you, Janice? Oh, one of my favorite Easter foods from my childhood is plumamouse. A pluma mousse? I'm told I don't pronounce it properly. A type of compote made from dried fruits like plums, cherries, raisins, and my favorite, dried apricots. Mom would cook a huge stock pot full of it and then chill it for serving. Some Mennonite families added milk to theirs, but she added a package of cherry jello. Really? Cherry jello? Is, uh, was there a reason why? Yeah, it thickens the liquid a bit and it gives it a nice bright red color. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess bright red is kind of a holiday color, I, I guess. Maybe for Christmas, I'm not sure for Easter. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so food manufacturers have long known the importance of food to holiday traditions and have used our desire to recreate these, you know, special, happy family memories to sell us products. Sarah Elvins, professor in the Department of History at the University of Manitoba, whose research looks at American consumption, shares how magazine advertisements directed at housewives played on their desire for nostalgic family gatherings to not only sell their wares, but sell a vision of the holidays themselves. Let's have a listen. All right, so uh, today I thought I would talk about one way in which food traditions are learned and shaped, and that is through advertising. Um, And I wanted to show you a few ads that present a certain vision of holiday tradition and how that changes over time. Um, Food advertisers very carefully create messages about tradition and the labor of cooking that reinforces the sense that the holiday should be a time of extra effort and special foods, and that this is primarily the responsibility of women. Um, Looking at food ads during the holidays, we can also see some of the changes in home cooking and baking that happened over the course of the 20th century. I'm gonna start us off looking at this ad from 1925 for Swan's Down Cake Flour. This really emphasizes the importance of homemade fruitcake and the superior properties of this specific brand and features a recipe to instruct the home cook. And the copy here, Christmas is hardly Christmas without homemade fruitcake, right? That, you know, you better go and make this if you really want your family to enjoy uh, enjoy this holiday. As we move into the post-war period, convenience food products transformed home baking. This is something that I've been looking at in studying the Pillsbury Bake Off. Cake mixes, Bisquick, frozen dough, these all changed the task of baking at home. 
So it's not surprising that by 1958, you might see an ad like this one from Pillsbury, where the role of the cook is very different. Now the cook is using a cake mix and using a box of icing to assemble and decorate and personalize something that is a prepared uh, food product. There's still labor involved, there's still skill involved, but the amount of time is different and the types of work that you're doing is very different if you are using a cake mix and then making it look like a present or something like that. Baking is a holiday tradition, of course, that has a long history, but food manufacturers were keen to reshape tradition so that mixes and other time-saving products could be incorporated into gift giving and celebration. Um, here, Betty Crocker offers a recipe book that features Betty Crocker brownie mix, date bar mix, gingerbread mix, and macaroon mix in order for you to um, personalize and make a gift that you can give uh, over the holidays. Um, the ad says, this will produce, quote, homemade good cookies quick as a wink. These ads were directed at women as the cooks and bakers within their households, um, almost without exception. And Pillsbury and Betty Crocker emphasized that you could keep up tradition but save work and time by using prepared food products. Um, so this still is a lot more work than going to a bakery and just buying some cookies, right? You never get off the hook entirely, but you can save time and that this will be as good as homemade. And I think it's not an accident that the ad copy here says, give your own. So even though this is coming from a mix, that it's you're putting this into your effort into it and that you are making it your own as you produce it. So this was the first um, image that I had in this presentation. This is Pillsbury hot roll mix being used to create Christmas tree bread. This is a very popular recipe. Pillsbury will run this ad very similarly today. Um, you can see iterations of this going for years and years. So this does become a tradition in many families, but again, using this convenience product to produce something that says, say Merry Christmas with a quote, home-baked gift. So it's still homemade, even though you're using this uh, convenience product. Now there's a very famous story about the advertising consultant, Ernest Dichter. Um, he was brought in to help boost sales of cake mixes. And he advised General Mills to remove powdered eggs from the mix and to require the breaking of eggs so that people feel like they're participating and feel like they're really cooking instead of um, using too much of a shortcut by buying uh, a cake mix. So Dichter argued that by making the mix too easy, this was hurting sales. Increasing the baker's workload would give women a better sense of ownership and pride in their involvement. As we move into the 1960s and 1970s, however, we start to see some pushback on this message and a sense that using a mix might be too much of a shortcut and provide too much of an easy way out. The irony here, of course, is that more women at this point were entering the workforce, they had less actual time to bake, and yet here we see uh, a story that ran in the newspaper in 1965 that looks back fondly on the days when everyone used to be snug in their beds and mom would drag herself out in the dark and cold to slave over a wood stove to bake cookies and provide that kind of magic um, for the families. Not surprisingly, um, Fleischmann's Yeast was a company that really pushed back on the idea of using mixes and instead promoted going the extra mile for the family for, for, by baking from scratch. 
this ad, um, make your husband glad he's yours. Be the only wife on your block to bake a beautiful whole wheat brand loaf um, really plays into this message of home baking as a sacrifice that you can make and that the payoff here is that your family will be happy. And I think the adoring gaze of the woman watching her husband cut this bread, um, you know, that that message is very strong here. Or something like this, um, how not to be taken for granted bake sticky buns from scratch. And so again, you have the woman offering the baked goods. The women never are eating in any of these ads. It's always, they're baking for other people's pleasure. And that this would be something, it's not every wife who takes the time and trouble to bake from scratch. He'll notice, he'll appreciate. So this is a currency within your marriage to um, you know, make this effort and your husband will appreciate this. So during the holidays, an ad like this, um, simply for the joy it gives, bake from scratch. Um, here, you don't even have the woman in the frame. Her hands are offering this Christmas stolen to her family, but she's not eating it. It's all about um, her making this effort for others. What do you put into it? Well, time and love and Fleischmann's yeast. What do you get out of it? Well, love, smiles, and the feeling you're doing something kind of special. You don't get out of it a delicious thing that you get to eat, right? So this is, the woman is very much the labor for everybody else's enjoyment um, during the holidays. The message of feeling guilty for not doing things from scratch had a slightly different twist from Pillsbury um, by 1967. So who has time to decorate cakes and cookies for the holidays? I think the expression of this cookie that looks kind of disgusted at having to do all this work over the holidays is quite uh, notable. And the woman, of course, is wearing the Santa hat, that she's the one that has to do the magic behind the scenes to make this happen for her family. Luckily, Pillsbury's has a solution by offering this product that will make it so that she can bake cookies at home. She can't go and buy cookies. That would be too easy. So still, the work of managing the holidays is still something that you can't escape, but you can make it a little bit easier um, with this product. And even um, this is another yeast. So yeast companies are really you know, suffering in the 1950s and 60s as everybody is using cake mixes. And so they're trying to get people back using yeast. And so um, reformatting recipes and saying that you can have a no time to bake holiday baking, um, you know, that you can have a recipe that makes it so easy, it makes it possible for you to do this for your family. So I'm just gonna end here with this image of the Pillsbury Doughboy, which again has this message that um, Santa has little helpers, why shouldn't you? That the mix or prepared food could be something that is a shortcut for women, but it is never allowed for, uh, you know, there's no sense here that you could just give up holiday baking entirely, that you're still going to have to put in this kind of work and that sense of guilt and, uh, you know, the sort of emotional work as well as the work of cooking really falls to um, the women that these ads are, uh, are addressed at. So the underlying message that the holidays require a lot of effort, that baking is an expression of a woman's love for her family, remain remarkably persistent, and that guilt is part of the holiday experience for women. Thanks. Well, that was fascinating, um, but also troubling. There's so much great work out there on the history of food media stereotyping of women, and I guess men too. 
I'm thinking of the writings of Valerie Kornick and Emily Contois, for example. Yes, Kornick's Roughing It in the Suburbs and Contois' Diners, Dudes, and Diets. Great books. Our next reflection is from Aaron Weinberg, an instructor in the Department of English, Theater, Film, and Media at University of Manitoba. She shared some of her family's Ashkenazi Jewish experiences of Hanukkah foods. So, taste of home. As um, a white Ashkenazi Jew, I both have a sense of home and very little sense of home. There's this idea of the old country, but where that is exactly, like where I, where, like, where my people come from, I can't be sure. Somewhere, maybe like, Ukraine, Poland, Austria, Romania. That's like a very vast region. And my family, I I think that perhaps because of the anti-Semitism that my ancestors perhaps ran from, um, that there isn't this idea of holding on to that heritage. Only when I got to university did I meet someone who was genuinely proud to be Polish? And I never thought of my grandmother, my only my only grandparent who had been born in Europe, to that it never occurred to me that she would ever be proud of that because of that anti-Semitism that she was running away from, an anti-Semitism that predated the Holocaust, that that was just like a cherry on a discrimination Sunday. Um, <laughs> um, and that often when I ask my grandparents, they'll just say the borders have changed, that that's kind of, so there are things that tie us to the past, but really a lot of um, the way we observe holidays as diasporic Eastern European Jews is making our traditions as we go along. So I wanted to talk about the dreidel, which is a symbol. It's a toy that we play with on Hanukkah. We gamble with the chocolate money. Um, and there are four different symbols which represent the initials for a great miracle happened there. Okay, in Israel, it's a great miracle happened here. The dreidels are literally different. So in this item, we have this encapsulation of this diasporic experience of this distance, um, remembering, but at the same time, not really sure what we are remembering, just knowing that we were unsafe and found a way to be safe. Um, so I would argue that the food that we eat on Hanukkah is how we both look towards the past and the past discriminations and also celebrate the miracle of freedom. So I'll start with the jelly donuts. So we call those sufganiyot. And... I just think that there's something so fantastic about celebrating with jelly donuts, that this is a food that 
in all other times of the year would be considered the junkiest type of junk food. But on this day, it's special that it's like the calories don't count because we're celebrating our like survival over discrimination. Um, and then there's Lutka's. And Lekkas are potato pancakes, and my experience with them is making them with my late dad. And the really wonderful thing is that even though we didn't have, you know, a recipe from the old country, every year we tried something different. Every year we managed to mess it up a little bit in a different way, uh, to burn ourselves on the hot oil, but it was exciting to try new things. There was the year when we made the Lekkas on a griddle. There was the year that my dad finally got his dream come true, the deep fryer, okay? Deep fried Lekkas, suddenly they were 3D. And that was so great. And even now that he's gone, I'm still looking for ways to switch it up, that there's room to switch it up. So like making Lekkas in my waffle iron. Okay, so, um, and then adding to that, we dip the lekkas in either sour cream or applesauce. Why? I don't know, but the decision making about whether one prefers sour cream or applesauce is this self-fashioning, is saying, this is my Jewish identity, I get to choose one of those, and... I don't know. It's as iconic within the Jewish diasporic existence as Chinese food on Christmas Eve. That there might have been an essential reason for it somewhere, but now it's something that we just do. But I would argue that these innovations, um, like in making the Lekkas, trying new recipes, every like five years trying to make like a healthy version with zucchini or sweet potato. And it's just really not the point of the fried food at the core. Um, that innovations are self-determination, that there is something really special about, even though we don't have a full sense of where we're from, we are deciding where we're going. And um, my last Hanukkah tradition is lighting the candles and every night you sing at least two blessings, but on the first night you sing a third, um, and I'll read it in English, which is blessed are, are you Adonai, our God, sovereign of all who has kept us alive, sustained us and brought us to this moment. And as the years go by, this prayer isn't just wrote to me it's something really special that reminds us of survival and the necessity of celebrating where we're at now and what we can do from here thank you so holiday food can be a way of both remembering the past and creating a future Yes, those foods and the ways they've changed over time can be particularly important for diasporic groups as ways to remember and perpetuate their heritage. Our final speaker, Jennifer Duick, is an associate professor of history at the University of Manitoba, where she writes and teaches about food, statelessness, and refugees in the Middle East. 
She begins by talking about historians Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger and their concept of invented traditions. When I was thinking about this panel, I went back to read the introduction actually by Eric Hobsbawm to the book that he edited with Terence Ranger called The Invention of Traditions, to which uh, the name of this panel, of course, refers. The book came out in 1983. It included articles by these prominent British academics from the rarefied worlds of Oxford and Cambridge. And although holiday traditions are by no means the only uh, or even the main examples discussed in the contributions to that book, they do feature in its first paragraph with reference to the annual festival of nine lessons and carols in the chapel of King's College, Cambridge on Christmas Eve, a concert that turned into a tradition with a much wider audience once the BBC Radio and World Service began broadcasting it. A key contention of Hobsbawm's introduction is that the rush to invent traditions emerges especially in moments of rupture, situations in which what he calls the old ways have been disrupted eras in which rapid transformations of society are taking place. So this led me to think about what holiday foods achieve in circumstances marked by rupture and discontinuity. I suggest here that holidays represent a temporary moment of world building on a micro level, usually within households, and that the purpose of creating these temporary holiday worlds is to lean towards both at once the numinous and the raucous, the numinous, meaning our connection to the divine and the sublime, whether we understand that in a theological frame or a holy secular frame. And the raucous, our need to embrace flights of fancy and boisterous disorder to upset our usual ways of enacting time and relationship. I think that food is integral to creating these holiday worlds, these ephemeral holiday worlds that offer both numinous and the raucous and that these take on particular importance where traditions have been invented and reinvented owing to deep social or familial rupture. Amid countless possible examples of which Aaron, I think, provided another, of, of holidays in circumstances and communities marked by rupture, I'll offer the example of Christmas celebration among the Lebanese. The story of Christianity in the Middle East is one with intense continuities. The Middle East is the birthplace of Christianity, and it's easy to access a sense of this age-old, this age-oldness among Christians of the East. Lebanon is also a society of massive ruptures, its people having lived through decades of civil war in the 1970s and 80s and renewed war again in 2006. Politicians and militias alike express conflict within groups delineated by religious affiliation. Yet at Christmas, the country comes together in enthusiastic celebration, a wild mashup of Eastern Christianity and Western capitalism in which everyone participates with some considerable abandon. I'll refer to three bloggers, to three bloggers who have written about Lebanese Christmas in the last few years. One blogger, Viviane, identifies simply as Lebanese. She does not identify her religion. But she notes both the production in Advent of all the foods that you have to have on hand at home to welcome guests. And this is liqueur, chocolate, chocolate liqueur or Irish cream liqueur, and then chocolates and dragées to go along with this. And she included on her blog these pictures, like these are really home photographs, blurry, poor lighting, but no less, I mean, actually wonderfully evocative for that of how the chocolates were arranged on the plate, outlining what specifically, you know, this white chocolate with puffed rice. And then 
pictures of all of the foods for the Christmas feast. Home photos, pizza, stuffed grape leaves, kibbe, which is Lebanese sort of uh, bulgur meat mixture, pasta salad, baked potato with garlic, roast, uh, um, uh, a roast with ham and cheese, turkey with rice. This is a mashup of all kinds of foods here. And she finishes with, the most important thing is the nativity set um, beside the tree, which all Lebanese have. Now, she doesn't mention what her religion is, but let's go on to another blogger who is explicitly Muslim Lebanese. She talks about her Lebanese Christmas, the hours that her mother spends making out of paper bags a nativity stable and landscape in which she places Jesus and the sheep and the shepherds and the wise men. And this is a family actually that is Muslim Lebanese living in Britain. So. Then there's this description of the feast that happens. First, samkahara, a large fish marinated and served with a spicy red pepper sauce. Next, a leg of lamb cooked to falling off the bone perfection, served on a bed of fluffy rice with minced meat topped with an array of roasted nuts. This takes center stage right next to the main course number three, the gloriously slow cooked turkey. The British and Lebanese cuisines collide with shared jugs of homemade gravy, she says. Um, and the Christmas meal is completed with a classic Christmas dessert in Lebanon, a French bouche de Noël, which is the classic French Lebanese, uh, the classic Lebanese um, dessert. My final example is from a Druze uh, novelist named uh, Rabih Alamedine, Druze family, which is... Um, and Arabic speaking, well, Wikipedia defines them there. Not much is known about them. They keep their religious beliefs uh, a secret. They're a sizable minority in Lebanon. And so they're quite an important demographic in Lebanon, neither Muslim nor Christian. And so he, he, is, he is from this Druze tradition. And he writes this article about Christmas in Beirut. He says, every year I try to convince my sister not to celebrate Chris Christmas. I tell her we're not Christians. The family is Druze, not Christian. We were raised in a tradition that is not supposed to have silly manifestations of faith. The only feast we celebrate is Adha, Abraham's sacrifice. We don't have a food orgy at the end of Ramadan. We don't flagellate ourselves during Ashura. And for Christmas, we certainly don't shower our children in gold, frankincense, and dolce and gabbana. <laughs> His mother always wanted to celebrate Christmas. His father grumbled and disliked it. She, the mother, had been taught by French nuns in Jerusalem where she grew up. The father was Druze from the Lebanese mountain and wanted to stay that way, however much he liked his single malt scotch and worldly travels. So the mother's tree remained simple. There always was a Christmas tree for the children. He said, but he writes, my mother's tree has remained simple, but now he's talking about the next generation, but not my sister's. So my sister always wants to have the best tree in all of Beirut. Sometime in late November, my sister's home is transformed into a holiday monster. She has a collection of at least two dozen Santa Claus dolls. She has a life-size red reindeer. She puts lights not just on the tree, but on every plant in the apartment, including the cacti. She covers every object in sight with a bowed red ribbon so that it looks like a present, and then she buys a present for every child she's ever met. She drives me crazy. I tell her we're not Christian. She says Christmas has nothing to do with Christianity. I tell her Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Christ. She asks, who? She doesn't stop at Christmas. Of course, she cooks lamb for Adha. She, paint, she hides painted eggs for the children on Easter. She has an orgiastic dinner for all her friends at the end of Ramadan. This year, she cooked a giant turkey for American Thanksgiving. 
I told her she's not American. She told me to stop being a Lebanese peasant from the mountain. For my part, I spent what are arguably the most formative years of childhood living in East Jerusalem, age 6 to 11. My family is Mennonite, not Arab. We're from Winnipeg. My childhood Christmases took place with a walk through the old city of Jerusalem to attend the midnight candlelight service at the Lutheran church whose tower marks the old city skyline to this day. As most of us find of our childhood worlds, this particular world of my childhood is largely lost to me. And yet that rupture and others that life inevitably brings leave space for the reinvention of traditions that animate and energize. Much like the Lebanese whom I've described here, I take Christmas as a time to generate miniature worlds upon worlds of tradition within my household. I too have a nativity set that I set up, one made of olive wood and purchased many years ago in Bethlehem. My Christmas is theologically promiscuous and culinarily eclectic. Alongside my regular impulse to roast a turkey and bake a thousand cookies, yes, the woman in the kitchen, uh, I also always find myself reaching for my Middle, e my Middle Eastern cookbooks, Kibbe this year, Bastia the next. The food production is always a little off scale. My ambitions are always greater than my energies. I can never get the timing right. And there's always a sense of impending chaos in the kitchen. But surely I tell myself this space of creativity that I find both raucous and numinous is what holiday cooking is really all about. Well, that's all from the Food Matters Research Cluster event on holiday food. It was a great event, but also a long one. We weren't able to capture all of it in this episode. Uh, John Malik, who is now at Providence University College, shared some personal observations of Filipino holiday food traditions. And there was a vigorous discussion afterwards over some holiday desserts. Yeah, it was a fun time and a great way to end the semester before winter break. From all of us here at the Manitoba Food History Project, we're wishing everyone a safe and enjoyable holiday, whichever ones you celebrate. I'll be looking forward to enjoying all the good food over the break. Yeah, me too. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, hosted by myself, Kent Davies, and Janice Thiessen. This episode featured talks by Sarah Elvins, Aaron Weinberg, and Jennifer Duick. Our theme music is by Robert Canning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on X, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.